there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. Two German brothers gave us a line that we'll recognize. Mirror, mirror upon the wall, who is the fairest of all? It was the Grimm brothers. In 1812, they wrote a story called Little Snow White. It doesn't bear much resemblance to the story that you know that, of course, probably comes from Disney. But it's interesting. There are a lot of different versions from 1812 and different translations. Of course, they were German, so it was written in German. And it's translated into English by a number of different people in different years. And it's understandable, once you read it, the original, you, you can understand why Disney fluffed it up a little bit. You know, it's like, well, okay. Uh, the story goes, depending on which version you read, the story goes that there was a queen, and she was sitting at her window while it was snowing, and she was sewing. And the snow was coming down like feathers from heaven. And the window frame was made of black ebony wood. As she sat there, she looked up at the snow and she pricked her finger with the needle, the sewing needle, and three drops of blood fell onto the snow. And it was so stark and beautiful, the white snow and the red blood and the black ebony window frame that she wished, oh, I wish I had a little girl who is as white as the snow, as red as blood, and as black as the ebony wood. And some time later, she had a little girl who was as white as snow and red as blood and with black hair like ebony. And so they named her Little Snow White. Now, the story takes a detour here. One is that soon after the queen died, the good queen died, was shortly after her little Snow White was born. And after a year, the king took another wife. And as the story goes, now this is an 1898 version, she was very beautiful, but so proud and haughty that she could not bear to be surpassed in beauty by anyone. She possessed a wonderful mirror which could answer her when she stood before it and said, Mirror, mirror upon the wall, who is the fairest of all? And the mirror, of course, would answer, Thou, O queen, art the fairest of all. And the queen was contented because she knew the mirror could speak nothing but the truth. I was thinking about this this morning. I was thinking about all the different versions and how to bring them together. Now, another version, the, the 1812 version that I read, said there was no other queen. It was the mother, and she was very beautiful. But then, and she had this mirror, and every morning she would stand before the mirror and say this. And the mirror would answer her. And then one day, after little Snow White was about seven years old, the mirror said, Well, tough luck, queen. You used to be the fairest of them all, but now little Snow White is fairer still than you of, in all the land. And that did it. The queen went bonkers with jealousy and pride and vanity and rage and, you know, and all that stuff. Now the story gets dark. And when she finally said, Mirror, mirror upon the wall, who is the fairest fair of all? It answered, O, lo o lady queen, though fair ye be... Snow White is fairer far to see. The queen was horrified, and from that moment envy and pride grew in her heart like rank weeds, until one day she called the huntsman and said, Take the child away into the woods and kill her, for I can no longer bear the sight of her. And when you return, bring with you her heart, that I may know you have obeyed my will. 
Now that's the 1898 version. The 1812 version says, Take her and stab her to death. Cut out her lungs and her liver. Bring them back to me so that I can eat them. So as you see, as time goes by, it gets dressed up more and more so that it's, what can I say, politically correct? And now it's not the mother, it's the stepmother. Inscribed in the vestibule of the temple at Delphi, you remember that's Apollo's temple, the words, know thyself. Socrates said, to be curious about that which is not my concern, while I am still in ignorance of my own self, would be ridiculous. So putting all this together... I look at that and I think, well, welcome to the ridiculous. Here we are asking questions about everything that doesn't concern us. And the last question we ever ask is about ourselves. What am I really like? I had this thought this morning. I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a mirror and you could stand in front of it and say, mirror, mirror upon the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And then I thought, oh my God, no, not if the mirror couldn't lie. That would be horrible. We wouldn't want that. We would break the mirror or we would not, we'd cover it. We wouldn't stand before it. It would be like the picture of Dorian Gray. What did he do with it? He hid it away. He hid it away where he couldn't see it, where no one could see it. He would go and look at it every once in a while, but he was horrified by what he saw until he finally realized, of course, that he could do something. He could still look as pure as a driven snow, but the portrait, the picture would show the marks of his sins, you know, show the the lines of his sin and the aging of his sin and the horror of his sin. So he figured, well, gee, nobody can see it, so I guess I can keep doing it. Interesting idea. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. So to know yourself has to do with gnosis. It's interesting. The Greek word means knowledge to influence and control. It's also used for one's aptitude. It's consistently used as a technical term, this is Greek, for experience knowledge in contrast to theoretical knowledge. As many of you know, in Spanish there are two words for to know, saber and conocer. Saber is to know how to do something, to be able to, whereas conocer is to be familiar with something. So you can be familiar with a person, but that doesn't mean you necessarily know the person, but you can be familiar with the person. So you can be familiar with the place, but you can know how to fly an airplane. So that would be saber. In English, of course, we just have to know, and it has to cover everything. And it's an unfortunate thing for us because it leaves a lot of wiggle room for imagination. I like wiggle room. I got that from Tammy yesterday. It's a lot of wiggle room. I thought, well, you know, that's really right. Consciousness gives you more wiggle room. If you have consciousness, more consciousness of something, it gives you more wiggle room. It gives you more ability to not necessarily move, but wiggle. It gives you more ability not necessarily to do, but to wiggle, to move toward doing. For us, it's so difficult for us to just pull in the reins and accept the fact that this has to take a long time. We really don't like that. And it's because of our identification with this body that lives in time. And the body that lives in time is the physical body. And the physical body is identified completely with, and we are identified completely with it, and it's identified completely with what we call I. So living in time, it doesn't have time. Time is not its friend in this way. It wants it now. So you'll notice that one of the big problems for us is we want everything now, unless it's pain. Then we want it later, and then time is our friend. We can buy now, pay later. We like that. Anything that we, can, that we have to do that we don't want to do, that we can put off till later, time is our friend. But anything that we want now, time is the enemy. I want it now, not tomorrow, not next week. I want it now. And so if you'll go on the Internet, you'll see that you can pay up to $40 extra 
to have something shipped to you tomorrow, to have it tomorrow morning, you know, then people will do that. People will expedite the shipping and have it now. You know, so what does it matter? What's it cost? doesn't matter what it costs. Now is all that is the only thing that's important. So if this weren't the truth, this wouldn't be in our society. All of these things I'm telling you, though they are unpleasant if you apply them to yourself, they are still the truth, nevertheless. And the only thing that really finds them unpleasant is the part of us that doesn't want to admit that we're like that or that we're caught in that trap, that snare. The work says, without self-observation, there can be no self-knowledge. The work also says, people imagine they know themselves and live in this illusion. So here we are. It's a double bind. So do you know yourself? Well, yes, I know myself pretty well. And the work says, no, you don't. And we say, well, then why'd you ask? Well, just to find out whether you thought you knew yourself or not. People imagine they know themselves and live in this illusion. So now what the work is saying is that if you think you know yourself, you're living in illusion. It's arbitrary. It doesn't say it specifically to you. It says it to everyone who reads it. If you come to the work, it says you don't know yourself. If you think you do, you're living in illusion. Well, how can an esoteric system cut such broad strokes? Well, that's the advantage it has that we don't have. It is no respecter of persons, but we are. We respect, first of all, ourselves, and we respect what we think. And if we think we know ourselves, then that's enough. But the work is no respecter of persons, and it doesn't care what you think. It cares about what's so. We're not used to that. We're used to doing what we want, doing what we think is right. We're used to our own understanding. We're not used to the understanding of some supposedly objective, impersonal work, body of knowledge that is applied to us indiscriminately without knowing who we actually are. This is a big deal. You don't know me. You don't know anything about me. You can't say that. Can you feel that inside of you? You need to feel that inside of yourself. You need to feel this sense of indignation when you and what you think and your pictures are challenged. When your pictures are challenged, if you don't feel this sense of indignation, you are being it. When you can begin to feel it, when you can begin to step apart from it a little bit and see, that causes indignation to rise up inside of me. Then you've begun to separate yourself a little bit. You've begun to become a little more objective. You've begun to move. You've begun to wiggle, as Tammy would say, over to the work side a little bit. This is a good thing. It just doesn't feel good. The problem with us is because we have established ourselves as the authorities, we get to determine what's true or what's not true based on how we think about it or how we feel about it. And if it doesn't feel good, it must not be true. And if we don't think it makes us look good, it's certainly not true. Because we have these pictures of ourselves that reality must match in order to be real. What the work says is, no, it's just the opposite. I have the real picture of you and what you're really like, and your picture must come into alignment with that. What you see yourself to be must come into alignment with this standard that I am setting. Well, this simply we will not tolerate. Well, who are you? Where does this work come from? Well, what makes it true? Well, well, who says? All of these things. We are not ready to relinquish our authority, our authorship of ourself. I authored me. I made me. I created me. You don't know me. Therefore, you can't say what I am. And this is our dilemma. In place of experiential self-knowledge, we have theoretical knowledge, imaginary pictures of ourselves bearing no resemblance to ourselves as we really are. Okay, well, we're willing to listen to that. As long as it's not too pointed, we can listen to that. But when the mirror on the wall starts to say, we're not the fairest of them all, we then have a problem. What do we do at that point? Well, 
we stop believing that the mirror can't lie. We stop believing that the mirror can speak only the truth. We start to question the work. We start to question whatever. If you're a Christian, you start to question the word. You don't question what it says. You just question what it means. You don't question what it says. You just question how it was translated. You don't question what it said. You just question how it's interpreted. You don't question what it says. You just question someone else who had their hand in it, who may have made a mistake. And this self-defense of our authorship of ourselves creates a huge problem for us because it makes us really an impregnable fortress of illusion because we keep shoring it up. Anytime that the truth comes or anytime that anything comes, anything at all comes and questions it, we shore it up with defenses. When our feeling of I enters these pictures, they become like beloved children. We nurse them, we protect them, and unfortunately, what we do with children is we use them to comfort ourselves. You'll see someone who is hurting and they'll call their children around them and they'll gather their children and they'll hug them and be with them and they feel better because their children love them. So they really basically use their children to massage their ego. And it's an unfortunate thing, but if you have any kind of objectivity at all about somebody else, of course, I'm not talking about you. Of course, no one in this room has ever done that with their children, but, you know, you can see it out there in other people if you have some objectivity. A little bit. A little bit of objectivity goes a long way, doesn't it? In turn, these children lead us in the wrong directions through pretense so that we get fewer and fewer glimpses of ourselves as we actually are. As payment for this comfort that we receive from these children that we create, these pictures, there's a price for that. And the price is that we have to be led astray a little bit. We have to be covered up by a little bit of pretense. And the more we rely on them, then obviously the more astray we go, the more they lead us in a wrong direction, and the more pretense we have to have because we can't let anyone know. We've got to look good even while the picture hidden away in the attic or wherever Dorian Gray hid the picture is rotting away. It's getting uglier and uglier by the day. We have to hide that away and look good. As long as we look good, that's all that matters. When the queen stood in front of the mirror, she wasn't interested in anybody else. She wasn't asking the mirror, is there anybody in the land who's, you know, who looks good? She was saying, who's the fairest of them all in all the land? Who is the fairest? Well, you are, O oh queen. Well, we're friends then, as long as you're saying the right thing. As long as the picture is saying the right thing, we're friends. Now, you've been working long enough to notice you can't change. You've been working in this work long enough to notice that you can't grow. And hopefully you're beginning to understand that you can't understand anything new that you reach certain parts in your journey on this path, you simply can't change. You can't grow and you can't understand. I mean, we've been talking about this just the past couple of days. Wednesday, I think someone said, you know, well, maybe I just don't have the understanding to grasp that now. This is huge. To be able to admit that you don't have the understanding to grasp something that someone else may understand. Can you see what a blow that is to the ego? It's like, we don't really believe that. We're willing to accept it for the moment. Well, right now, I'm having a, a little bit of brain fade, but I'll be back on top in a minute, and I'll understand everything better than you. That's really us. And if you don't know you have that picture of yourself, you need a mirror, <laughs> one that won't lie to you. But the problem is, is that we won't tolerate a mirror that doesn't lie to us. You know, that one mirror, I don't know where that mirror is now, the one that couldn't lie, that could only answer truthfully. I don't know where that mirror is, and 
pretty sure that we don't want to find it because I could hold that mirror up and have held that mirror up dozens of times from in dozens of different languages and from different systems and cultures and, you know, Islam and Judaism and Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism. You know, you can hold the mirror up because everyone has the mirror. Every single one has the mirror. And you hold it up, but it's like, no, 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 that's not it. The knowledge that you have has taken you as far as it can. Unless you build experiential self-knowledge on your current theoretical knowledge, you remain as you were. This is a tough thing to face. The knowledge that we have has taken us as far as it can. Unless we take that knowledge and apply it and make it experiential knowledge rather than just theoretical intellectual knowledge, we will not change, we will not grow, we will not understand anything new. We will not be able to take in new meaning from life, from impressions. We will continue to take in the same old meaning that we have taken in all of our lives. We will continue to see people the same way. We will continue to react to situations the same way. We will continue to react to money the same way. We will continue to react to loss the same way. We will continue to react to gain the same way. We will continue to react to finding something, finding a bag of money in the street the same way. Unless we do something with the knowledge that we have already received. It's all theoretical for us now. And what keeps it theoretical is these pictures. Because every time we get a piece of theoretical knowledge, we use that to polish up the picture so that the picture looks better, so that the picture of ourselves improves, it grows, it expands its consciousness, it becomes more loving, it becomes more generous, it becomes more kind, it becomes less angry. So what we do with theoretical knowledge is we restore the pictures of ourselves. We're like the curators in a museum, (laughs) and we bring all of these knowledgeable technicians in to restore the pictures so that they always look as good as they can look. Maurice Nicole said, everyone stands before a mirror most of the day, but it's not a mirror really, because a real mirror distorts nothing and reflects without criticism exactly what is before it. It is this mirror that we need, a real objective mirror and not an imaginary one. But how many could survive having their imaginary mirror, whether self-flattering or self-pitying or self-debasing, taken away and replaced by a true one. I'm glad that Maurice Nicole said that because I don't have to now. You can be mad at him and you don't have to be mad at me. And that's always good for me anyway. While talking to my brother, one of my brothers the other day on the phone, I must have said something to which his ego protested with tears and self-pity and self-debasement. He couldn't see that. As ego, his self-pity and his self-debasement, as ego. Because it wasn't what we usually call ego. What we usually call ego is pride and vanity. But we don't see the pride and vanity in self-pity and self-debasement. Because my brother actually said, I said, that's pride. I said, that's thinking more of yourself than you ought. And he said, no, it's not. I, I hate myself. I know I'm a sinner. Oh, I'm a horrible person. And he was really crying about this. He was just wailing about this. Could not see that his self-pity, that he's crying about this, was self-pity. Could not see that I'm a sinner, I'm a horrible person, was all self-debasement. He could not see that that was his ego protesting. Couldn't see it. Why couldn't he see it? Because he had a picture of himself being humble. That's it. He had a picture of himself being humble. That picture was so powerful. That picture was so huge. He has had so much theoretical knowledge from the Bible. He reads a Bible reader from the Bible. He reads the Bible. He takes everything it says exactly that's the way it is. And he has that theoretical knowledge and he applies it all to the picture. And that picture is a saint. That picture is the picture of humility. 
that pictures the picture of devotion, that pictures the picture of wanting to do it right. And that picture is big and shiny and bright and the colors are crisp. But the picture of himself, as he really is, is somewhere on the dark side of the moon. How far is the moon away? A long way. It's a long way, a couple of miles. Anyway, we're not going today on a field trip. So at least not to that, to the dark side of that moon. Hopefully, though, we'll be able to take a peek at the dark side of our own moon, our own self. The reason I bring this up is because my brother spoke well for us. Just for the record, you are not humble. It might even be a good idea. Just go ahead and say that out loud. I am not humble. I am proud. I am arrogant. And I am vain. Now, unfortunately, saying this doesn't really do anything. But if you pay attention to your sensations while you say things like that, something may happen. You may notice something. You may notice some objection or some irritation or some feeling of coercion, like you're being coerced or like that's not fair or whatever. Whatever. I don't know what you'll feel. But if you pay attention to something inside of yourself, if you pay attention to yourself when you say something like that, you could discover something. But it takes so much effort to pay attention to ourselves when we're just repeating something someone's asked us to repeat, doesn't it? Now, let's try I am not humble again, only this time. Pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to your feelings. Pay attention to your sensations, your thoughts, any emotions that come up in you, and say, I am not humble. See, that takes a little bit more, doesn't it? It's not so easy. You notice that nobody's saying, I am not humble? You notice that no one's saying that out loud? It's because it takes too much effort to pay attention to yourself and say it. Yeah, I could sit here a long time, I think, waiting for somebody to say it. I don't think it's going to happen. Oh, it happened. (laughs) If you're alive, you're full of the pride of life because you lack a real objective mirror. See, the unfortunate thing is they don't tell us in the story where the queen got the mirror. They don't tell us where we can get one. If we went mirror shopping, which everyone here has done, but when we were mirror shopping, we weren't mirror shopping for a mirror that would only tell us the truth. We were shopping for a mirror that made us look good. Come on. You've seen these big makeup mirrors, haven't you? That enlarge your face like 10 times or something. So it looks like craters on the moon. Your face looks like, your skin looks like craters on the moon. You don't spend a lot of time with that mirror, do you? But if you can find a mirror that kind of has a rosy light around it and somehow, you know, blurs the vision and makes you look smooth and thin and a stretchy mirror makes you look thin, that mirror you can spend some time in front of. You're smiling, so I I see you have noticed this about yourself. This is a good thing. We're either going to obey the work or obey ourselves. That's the truth. We're either going to obey the work or we're going to obey ourselves. What we have done up to this point is obey ourselves. We have allowed the work to work to a degree in areas that it's, okay, we have given it permission. We have said, okay, you're right about this, so you can work in this area. But these other areas, we're not so sure about you yet. We're not so sure you're really a mirror that only tells the truth. So we don't really trust you. We still reserve the right to say yes or no to whatever you say. Do you know that you are reserving that right for yourself with the work? If you knew where, it would be even more useful. Don't let the fox guard the hen house. The fox is your ego. It's your false personality. It's that which is maintaining the false pictures of yourself. Don't let that fox guard the hen house. Don't let that fox guard your treasure. Don't let that fox determine what is valuable because that fox thinks the only thing that is valuable are these phony pictures that it's put together. 
Like people in life, people in the work say, I feel depressed, thinking they've observed themselves. They haven't even begun to observe themselves. I feel depressed. Uh, I'm angry. I feel angry. You know, don't get me wrong. This is a big step. When someone can admit that they're angry, that's a big step. Look how long it took yesterday. When, are you angry? Well, no. So there's no anger. Well, no, I don't feel angry. It's always what comes next. I don't feel angry. And then, well, it's possible that I'm angry, and I just don't know. That's pretty much how it goes. It wasn't Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who wrote a book about dying and about the steps of the stages of dying and its denial. And, you know, there's these different seven different steps, I think. And, and I've noticed that there are different steps toward, first we deny it, straight up. No, I'm not angry. No. And then, it, no, I don't feel angry. Then it's like, well, okay, it's possible that I'm a little angry. Well, maybe I'm a little annoyed. And I, okay, I might be a little irritated, but, but it's not really anger. You know, so just gently we'll come to it sometimes. Sometimes people won't at all. So it's a big step to say, I feel depressed. Because you have had to give up that much pretense. You have had to give up that many pictures of yourself as never depressed, always cheerful. Why are you always cheerful? Well, because you know the truth. Why are you always cheerful? Because you are in control. Why are you always cheerful? But because that's the way you're supposed to be. And so you have these pictures. To go against these pictures takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of effort. It doesn't happen automatically. If you don't have somebody questioning you, so, okay, so you're, there's no possibility that you're angry at all then. Well, you already you know, okay, this is damn, this freaking mirror here now is talking to me. That's what we don't like. Now the mirror is talking to me. And it's like, you know, if it was just me in the mirror, I think I'd just tell him to shut up. But there's these other people around, and it'll really make my pictures look bad if I tell him to shut up right here in front of all these people. So, you know, uh, well, you know, I guess it's possible, yeah. As long as we've got some wiggle room. As long as the ego's got that wiggle room. Well, possible doesn't mean I am angry, does it? It's possible. But it's not an admission, is it? It's not an acknowledgement. It's not a yes. Absolutely. I am in touch with my anger and I'm going to kill you right now for bringing it up. It's different. It's just wiggle room. The ego's happy with wiggle room. Likes that. That's good. Give me some room to move. Flop around. Don't try and pin me down here. From what part of the machine is it coming? The depression, the anger, whatever it is. Which center? Is it coming from the intellectual, the emotional, or the instinctive center? Let's take depression. Let's leave anger alone because you're so ugly when you get angry. Let's just take depression. Everybody feels depressed once in a while. But where does that depression come from? It's possible to be cheerful in the emotional center and have depression elsewhere in you. I noticed this the other day. Someone said to me, I'm sorry you're sick. <laughs> I said, why? I don't mind being sick. Actually, for me, it's a free altered state of consciousness. I get an altered state of consciousness, which I enjoy, and it's free. It didn't cost me anything. I don't have to go to the movies. I don't have to pay anybody anything. It just is here. It comes with the instinctive center taking energy away from one area and putting into another area. So emotionally, I'm cheerful about it. Yet there is still this subdued, depressed state that comes from being sick. It comes from the instinctive center. It's perfectly valid. It's fine. See, here's one of the steps. We have made all this wrong. We've made being depressed wrong, so we have to justify it. It's okay to be depressed. No! It's not okay to be depressed. You have happy pills everywhere. I mean, there's so many happy pills, I can't even name them all anymore. It used to be just Prozac. Now it's Zoloft and Prozac and, geez, what was the one you were on? 
Paxil. And these happy pills aren't working, so now we've got new super happy pills to work with your current happy pills to make sure that you don't commit suicide on your current happy pills. Jeez, hold on here. Is it okay to be depressed? No, absolutely not. It's not okay. Every, you have to be up all the time and never change. But unfortunately, that's not the way life is. Depression is a natural fact of life. If you have a body, sooner or later, you are going to be depressed. That's the way that is. But no, all the advertisements tell us that's not how it has to be. We can have happy pills to keep that from ever happening. But now these people are committing suicide with their happy pills. So it's like, well, maybe we need a new happy pill. So they come up with new happy pills. And people find a way to commit suicide on those happy pills, too. Because something is wrong in here. Because we've got these pictures that we're trying to live by and live up to that are lies. And we need a dose of truth. But we don't like the truth because it says things that oppose the pictures. If this seems odd to you, that you can be cheerful in the emotional center and have depression somewhere else, it's because we've taken ourselves as a single person, a single I. When we take ourselves as a single person, a single I, as we saw yesterday, we take other people as a single person and a single I. Well, why are you depressed? Well, you can't be depressed. Well, if you say you're happy, then why are you depressed? Well, if you're so happy, then why, why are you depressed? You see, we, we don't see that you can be happy in this part, but depressed in this part. Why don't we see that? I'll tell you why you don't see that. You don't see that is because you haven't observed it in yourself. And if you haven't observed it in yourself, you're not going to see it anywhere else. And if you do see it anywhere else, you're not going to have an answer for it because you haven't got the experiential knowledge of observing it in yourself. Or you're asleep. Maybe you have, and you just can't remember yourself. You just can't remember that. You just have no memory of that. You have no recollection of the fact that that person you're judging is not one. So you're judging a person who isn't there or who may be there. So it's like a crowd of people. Say they're, they're a crowd of maybe 100 people. And you say, yes, I know that crowd. That's John. And everybody else, all the 99 other people there, all disappear now because you have said, I know that crowd. That's John. And that's exactly what we do. When we look at another person and say, that's John or that's Mary. What we've done is we've just eliminated the 99 other people. That's what judgment is. And that's why it's silly. Don't bother with it. Don't bother judging people. It's just silly. Because all you're doing is judging one person out of the hundred. If you're seeing all hundred of them, then you know not to judge. Because like, pfft, whatever. It's just a group of eyes. From this, seeing ourselves as a single person, a single eye, comes denial and pretense. Are you depressed? No, I'm not depressed. Denial. Well, you look depressed. We have a big smile. Pretense. <laughs> we start to laugh. Pretense. We say we're not depressed, we say we're not angry, we say we're not upset, and all the other things we say, until it bursts forth. Oops. Then we move to self-justification. So, I'm not angry, I'm not upset, I'm not depressed, but then it bursts forth. We can't hold it back anymore. It comes out. You idiot! Blah, 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 or whatever. And so, now the cat's out of the bag. What do you do? You were denying that you had a cat in the bag. What do you do now? It's not my cat. I don't know who put that cat. I don't know how that cat got there. That's not my cat. That's not my bag. Yeah, it's the same color as my bag, but that's not my bag, and that's not my cat. That's somebody else's cat. That's not my cat. Well, whose cat is it? It's probably that guy's cat. He makes me so angry all the time. He, he's the one. So now we're into self-justification. Our final and most debilitating self-defense is, I can't do. Well, the cat's out of the bag now. That's not my cat. Sure, it's your cat. Look, that's your cat. Well, I can't do. Look at the pattern. First, we deny it. Then we pretend and we justify. We deny it. We pretend that it's not there. What bag? There's no cat in the bag. There's not even a bag there. No. 
So we go through the denial, then we go through the pretense, then we move to, once the cat's out of the bag, it's like, then we move to self-justification. Not my cat. And then where do we go from there? Well, it's somebody else's cat. Not my cat. If you won't leave it at that, then I'll find out whose cat it is, but it's not my cat. And if the cat was depression, now it's two cats. Now we have anger in with the depressed cat, you know. <laughs> and that cat is getting, you know, that cat's claws are out, so back off. And if you don't back off, then we, we move to something else. We up it. And when we do this, with one sweep of the tongue, we save our pictures and slay the work. We break the mirror. We're right, and the work is wrong. We sacrifice the work on the altar of our own ego. We still get to author. We still get to say what is the truth and what is not the truth, according to how it makes us feel and whether or not it matches our pictures. You must begin to see through your own pictures. Until you do, you won't stop prancing about, all full of yourself, all full of your loyalty, your honesty, your virtue, your nobility, your generosity, your kindness, your fairness, your wonderfulness. You won't stop strutting around with all of those things until you begin to see through your own pictures of yourself. We lie, we cheat, and we steal. You lie, you cheat, and you steal. And actually, to take it a step further, you kill in fits of rage. It's always self-righteous rage, of course. You're always right about it. I mean, you had the right. And what this has caused is a wake of pain and suffering everywhere we have gone in life. Now, that's the truth. I don't have any reason to lie about this. It's the truth about us. Now, the first thing we do is say, well, I haven't only left a wake of pain and suffering. Some people like me. Some people are happy with me. I've done a lot of good things. We go right back to the pictures. The mirror says this. Well, my, but, okay, well, maybe I'm not the fairest, but I'm the second fairest, right? I'm still pretty damn fair, right? So we're willing to have that until we can forget about the fairest. We are different from our pictures, but when we begin to meet this, many people cling to the false pictures and quit. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about quitting. You can quit without leaving the room, without leaving the group. It's called camping. You just become a happy camper. You pitch your tent and you camp. And you never really leave the base camp to climb the mountain. You support all the other people who climb the mountain. That's enough. Well, you, you go ahead and climb the mountain. I'll have, I'll have dinner ready when you get back. You go ahead and climb the mountain. I'll uh, air out your sleeping bag for you. I'll dust out your tent. Some people quit for a while. Some people quit for life. Living at the work base camp. You look like you're part of the climbing team. You look like you're part of the work. But you don't work. So what to do? Make efforts in the direction of supporting the work and not defending your pictures. I don't know how more simply to put this. If you have a choice between defending your pride and vanity, defending your pictures, defending your rightness, defending what you think, or siding with the work, side with the work. Make that effort. What does the work say? You don't know yourself. So if somebody asks you if you're depressed, what do you say? No, I'm not depressed. That's siding with your pictures. Side with the work. Well, what would that look like? Well, if you want to be honest, say, I don't know. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at solidrockvista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.